Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on the website womensdeclaration.com, where you will find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 31,814 people from 159 countries and is supported by 448 organisations from all over the world. We have over 100 volunteer activists, including 53 country contacts, engaged in defending women's rights. This week, we have Ilse Jacobson from Germany. She's going to, the title of her talk is The Misrepresentation of Scientific Facts and Promotion of Gender Ide Ideology by Public Broadcasting in Germany. Then we're going to hear from April Morrow from the USA, Women on the Inside, the activist work Sovereign Women Speak is doing here or there in Washington State for women inside WCCW, Purdy Prison, and also how to structure a women's conference. And then we will hear from Sheila Jeffries from the UK, who is uh, an author in the area of sexual politics. She is has written 12 books on the history and politics of sexuality and is a director of WDI Women's Declaration International and co-author of the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights. Uh, Sheila Jeffries is going to talk about nappy fetishism. I'm really, really happy to pass over to Ilza Jacobson, who is going to talk to us uh, now about the misrepresentation of scientific facts and promotion of gender ideology in Germany. So to be honest, I never imagined I would speak at a webinar directed at feminist, um, but it's a great pleasure to be here. And I'm um, very, very grateful for having this opportunity. I would actually like to start with a very brief introduction of myself, just to give you background. Um, I study veterinary medicine, um, probably because as a young girl, my aunt put me on her horse, big mistake. Um, I then decided to go into research, my PhD in microbiology, and I'm currently teaching in that field. I was first introduced um, when I was 18 by my philosophy teacher who after class gave me Sexual Politics by Kate Millett to feminism. So I started right out with radical feminism and then of course read the usual books, but I never really got into activism. The only thing up to um, actually a few months ago I really did was as a group leader in science, trying to promote women in science on a day-to-day -day basis by networking, making sure that when we organize conferences, we have a sufficient number of female speakers, um, supporting women who are pregnant during their PhD, et cetera, et cetera. So, and that was basically all I was doing up to very recently. I came about the gender ideology concept um, in the context of discussions around Vogue um, ideas on YouTube, while I was actually looking for documentaries on feminism. I was thinking this would be nice to watch while I was redoing my bathroom. Um, and that made me aware of the topic. So as a consequence, I signed the declaration in 21. Um, the year in which in May, the proposal of self-ID legislation was rejected in the German parliament. So I thought, you know, that there is an issue in several countries, but probably not in Germany. 
And I kind of sit back and watched. And then in September 21, the Lancet cover happened, um, which you're probably all aware of. Now, that Lancet cover made me incredibly angry for two reasons. One reason, the obvious one, is that I think referring to women's bodies with vaginas is dehumanizing us. Um, it's one of the worst things I've ever heard and never expected to hear this phrase from the medical establishment. The other point was that as a veterinarian, I immediately realized that this idea of referring to women in the context of menstruation as bodies with vaginas is scientific nonsense because most female mammals do not bleed at all. And those who do often do not bleed because they menstruate, but like dogs, this beautiful example here, do bleed during pre-estrus and estrus, so during the fertile days, which is the opposite to what happens in women. As I got a little bit more active online to find out more and started a dedicated Twitter account to first follow the UK red femme scene and then made contact with German ones. And what you frequently encounter there is in arguments that somebody more or less says, you know, biology has advanced and biological sex is not binary. And if you insist it is, you're a bigot. So one question was, where did they got those ideas from? And in the English um, area, certainly an article in Scientific American 2017 had a big influence. And this is science journalism. It's not science per se. And, and it's hard work to always point out how this graph, for example, misrepresents the actual facts. Now, Wired Twitter then made contact with um, a group of people who often publish or post under the hashtag Teamology. And one of those, um, Rika Hümpel, contacted me in March this year because she had the idea to go through different pieces on public broadcasting to tackle misrepresentation of scientific facts and um, to maybe find five examples and then to write about it, include an open letter and have at least 40 biologists to sign them. So I got involved with that at that stage. Now, a few words about public broadcasting. It was established in Germany after the Second World War in West Germany, and it's modeled on the BBC. So it's supposed to be part of society, but independent from the state and government. It's governed by councils, and on these councils, there's a maximum of a third of the members um, which are allowed to be close to the government, so either government members or associates. The way it's funded is that each household, there's really no opting out, um, has to pay a monthly fee to guarantee stable and independent funding, which I personally think is a good idea if public broadcasting does what it's supposed to do. And that is to provide information, education and entertainment to the public. And especially the information education should facilitate democratic discussions and the formation of opinions independent of political agendas. Now, when I started to help out with that idea of looking for examples where science in the context of gender ideology might be represented in public broadcasting, it was really going down a rabbit hole. And I'll show you um, two examples today, which I think are representative of a few of the tactics used. So the first example is about scientific facts around sex. Um, what you see on the left is a screenshot from a science show in one of the um, public broad or published by one of the public broadcasting agencies, the WDR. 
um, where the German title roughly translates into boy or girl, why there are more than two sexes. But what's important to note is that the German word Geschlecht or Geschlecht in plural actually has no very precise meaning. It can mean sex in the biological way. And when I refer to biological sex, I mean the definition about developmental pathways leading to the production of either large or small gametes, which are necessary for sexual reproduction. However, Geschlecht in German could also be used to refer to gender, so stereotypes or societal roles assigned to the sexes, or gender identity. And the first problem with this example, it's a 45 minute TV show, is that they don't define what they mean with Geschlecht. Do they mean sex? Do they mean gender? Do they mean gender identity? Do they mean a potpourri of all of that? And if they, and that's what they imply, refer to um, Geschlecht as biological sex, then it's important to know straight away, there is no proof for a third gamut in scientific literature. So what do they mean with more than two sexes? To show you a few examples of how this um, TV show got things wrong is I translated German's quotes into English. Um, so there's several um, spots within that video where they claim that early during development embryos are both male and female, or that embryos have both male and female genital precursors and therefore are intersex at day 30. Now, if you look at the actual scientific facts at day 30, embryos have three gonads. These are not yet differentiated. They haven't even started the pathway into male or female development, even though the pathway they will go down to is already genetically determined. And then we have, in fact, two duct systems, the Wolfian and the Millerian ducts, which later on develop in either the male or the female genitalia, such as the fallopian tubes, uterus, cervix, or the upper part of the vagina. But the fact is that you can either develop the Wolfian duct, so the male part or the female duct. Um, the development is mutually exclusive. So what we actually have in embryos is that because the gonads are undifferentiated, they're neither male or female, and the duct system will eventually develop and develop by resolving one and keeping the other. So claiming that this is both male and female is absolutely wrong because we have underdeveloped or not yet differentiated structures. What also is important is that they use the word intersex. Um, now we know that the better term would be differences or variation of sexual development. And if you imagine an embryo, which would be um, really intersex at that stage, it would mean the absence of genital precursors before differentiation or a lack of differentiation of those structures later on, either of which would lead to infertility, meaning a severe medical condition. So this is by normalizing the idea, which is scientifically wrong, that embryos are intersex, the attempt probably was to remove potential stigma from people with DSDs, but actually um, they completely ignore the fact that many DSDs might result in medical conditions which are worthwhile or require treatment. A few other quotes from those 45 minutes. There is a person called Lindy introduced who calls himself or herself a hermaphrodite. And the host then further on explains that Lynn is neither man nor woman. Well, first of all, true hermaphrodites, functional hermaphrodites do not occur in humans. 
and hermaphrodites are both male and female. They're not neither. They're actually both, and they certainly do not constitute a third sex. There's another quote uh, I stumbled across, which made me um, uncomfortable, which is humans differentiate children as girls and boys because that's easiest. Well, that might be true, but nature strives for diversity implying that nature is better than humans, and they provide two examples. One is turtles and the other is fish. Now in turtles, sex is in fact determined by external environmental temperature, um, which then drives gene regulation, basically leading to an individual embryo going into a male or female differentiation pathway. So the switch is different, but the process is the same. It's not more diverse than what happens in humans. And of course, um, sex change in fish is A, something which doesn't happen in humans, and B, they change from male to female or vice versa. There is no third sex in fish. Other examples, I'm not gonna go into too much detail. They talk about asexual reproduction, which has nothing to do with sex as asexual implies. They talk about isogametic species, which have mating types, not sex. They talk about hormone levels, um, which made me laugh because a castrated bull, as you're all aware, is still male. And also claim that brain is a mixed sex organ um, based on transgender individuals and that men can therefore think female, which made me wonder because I was nearly shouting at my TV at that point, whether this is the male part of my brain then taking over and making me angry. So overall, um, in this show, what is done is they provide a lot of scientifically accurate details, which are fascinating to watch, but by lacking a clear definition of what they mean with Geschlecht or sex, um, and by basically just throwing bits of complexity to the audience, um, they are more confusing than clarifying anything. Um, and because there's lack of clarity, they imply without demonstrating um, that sex is not binary. So it's confusion rather than um, factual education. The second example, um, which made me furious, I have to say, was um, a series of three pieces um, in Arte, which is a channel um, that is co-produced between France and Germany. Um, and this really, for me, was a clear deformation of gender critical voices as turfs and bigots. So it starts with an introduction, which is entitled Transphobia and Feminism. It was um, aired originally in May this year. And this intro starts with a misquote of J.K. Rowling. So that TV piece is in German. Um, I've back translated the German into English. And really what they said was that J.K. Rowling said, women are people who menstruate. And we all know that this is badly misquoted because we know she said there used to be a word for people who menstruate, which is quite a big difference. Then it's claimed that there's a debate within feminism, which implies it's feminism only rather than a discussion we should have in the broader society. And that it's turfs um, who are feminists who want to keep, for example, trans identified males out of female sports, especially in the United States. So a very weird definition um, of that slur. The second piece is a discussion between a trans identified male who is a founder of what he claims to be the first trans feministic media format with a female host. 
And this um, trans-identified male claims that the underrepresentation of trans and feminism is due to the lack of uterine menstruation, which he compares to a men's rights activist argumentation. The female host then basically explains that the exclusion of Tim's is an attack on those people and that the definition of cis woman by biology is a patriarchal construct because um, the interpretation is that um, the vagina is a female penis and that this interpretation is made by the medical establishment. This is something I've never heard in medicine and never from any medical establishment. So I have no idea where this comes from. Um, and it closes with the claim that there is a fluent spectrum between vagina and penis because intersex people. In this discussion, there isn't a single critical voice allowed to speak. So it's all presented as facts, um, as if this is the one and only truth. And in the second piece, and that's more serious, um, entitled The Not-So-New Transphobia of Some Feminists, um, they start with footage from the London Pride. You're probably all aware of the small lesbian group who tried to get the L um, out and they misrepresented their opinion by claiming that they did protest against trans because trans excludes lesbians. They then go on to um, claim that those lesbians call themselves radical feminists and are known as TERFs. They're probably all radical feminists, but they um, are known to, as TERFs only because TERFs has been used as a slur. The further on tell the audience that the turf ideology originated in the UK and is now taking roots in France and Germany. Um, they talk about the so-called trans woman rapist myth, which they claim has been created by Janice Raymond in the transsexual empire and that this is fueling turf activism. Now, a lot of people who might be called turfs, um, I spoke to have never heard from Janice Raymond and have never read The Transsexual Empire. And they close with the, the claim that biology-based definition of women is essentialist and always results in a conclusion that trans women are dangerous without really explaining how they come to this um, conclusion. And I find it really hard to understand how could anybody arrive at that. Now, the problem with this is really, um, first of all, um, they got simple facts wrong. They weren't even able to quote rolling right. Um, they didn't show the original English version in the background. They got the London Pride event completely wrong. They showed a one-sided narrative allowing trans-identified males to speak, but no radical feminist. So for me, this is classical Davo. They're complete, completely reversing um, the situation as I experience it on social media. And I don't know if it's coincidence or not, I'm not gonna speculate, but this was all aired in early May 21. So relatively short because before the German parliament debated and voted on self-ID. The third very brief example is that um, the idea of transgender identities is now also included in children's programs. So this is a very famous one in Germany called Die Maus. It's been airing for, I think, at least 40 years, if not longer, um, where they had two small documentaries and different um, shows. The first on 
a person called Eric who was homeless and then got a flat. That's all fine. I have no problem with talking with children about homelessness. But then in the second um, bit, they visit Eric again. Eric is now Katya, a woman who, amongst other things, likes shoes and clothes. So this is basically, um, first of all, not really discussing what's behind the idea that a man can become a woman. It's presented as a fact, as a simple possibility, and it's associated with clothing choices, which, of course, is reinforcing sex stereotypes. Now, one question is, what can you do with um, such TV shows? You can complain, but that usually doesn't help much. Um, coming back to the original idea from Rico Humpel, um, if you think about the purpose of um, public broadcasting, which is to inform and educate and to facilitate democratic discussions and the formation of an opinion independent of any agenda, one could question whether those shows really are within the purpose of public broadcasting. So I contributed a very, very little bit. There were other people doing really the main, uh, main stack of work, um, a dossier, which is 50 pages in total. And Rico Humpe contacted various newspapers um, trying to find one which would be willing to publish a statement linked to this dossier. Um, if you read the dossier, um, it's written in German. Please note, I'm not happy with all the phrases. I would have rephrased um, several passages, and I personally would have probably concentrated on fewer and um, stronger examples. But um, at that point, we felt it's better to get something out than to wait another six months because of internal discussions. So um, unfortunately, my animation doesn't work in the screen, but no worries. So what happened is that in um, the journal Die Welt, the um, statement came out. Um, this triggered a lot of reactions, first of all, from the queer officer of the German government, who's a member of the Green Party, who claimed that everything is homophobic and transphobic and humanphobic, which then learned, led to internal discussions within the newspaper and the broader company. So the Welt belongs to the Springer company, a very large um, publishing company, where one of the CEOs, Matthias Döpfner, then posted um, a reply basically also claiming that the statement was homophobic and transphobic, and maybe it should not have been published. So this triggered um, a lot of debate with some other newspapers commenting on it. Um, the left-leaning ones usually just agreeing that everything is queerphobic and clickbaiting and extreme right, whereas the more conservative newspapers tended to really um, discuss either the um, topic per se or what came after within the Springer company. Now, that was a little bit terrifying initially, but a week um, later, when you looked at the um, signature list, we had published um, with Eva Engelken, a Green Party member here in Germany, who's active against trans ideology, where people from the public could download the dossier, and if they support it by email, um, give their details to be included on a signature list. Um, I think there was a lot of positive results. So we started with 99 initial signatures from the authors as well as other supporters like myself. And 
um, three weeks later, there were 1,400 additional signatures. And if you looked into um, or at two later pieces by two of the authors of the initial statement of the politician or political science professor Uwe Steinhoff and Andreas Cortus, actually um, a psychotherapist and, and sexual MD um, focusing on, on children and who's against transing kids um, without very, very clear um, rare diagnosis. So they were allowed to publish two pieces explaining again the motivation behind the statement and what they really meant. And if you then look at the public response on the websites of the um, newspaper, there was a vast majority supporting either of these two authors. Also, and I think this is really important, um, there was one very small online magazine from what I would consider the far left, the Autonomie magazine. So this is really more into um, a socialist communist area where one of the authors gave an interview to, which is really combining the criticism um, to transgender ideology with um, class analysis and feminist analysis. I think this is a great piece of work. And by this interview, there's maybe a chance to reach an audience which would distrust the larger newspapers to begin with. So as my closing slide, um, I always try to leave people with something slightly more optimistic. Um, so the examples I showed you, the negative examples were from 2021. This year, there were two interesting pieces at um, which were actual good discussions around the topic. So factual, factual, unemotional, um, the type of discussion I think we need, one only in audio as a podcast and the other in a TV format where they have three people each from either side of the discussion. How can academics pretend that gender identity is real when gender identity goes against science? And I think... Um, the first thing to realize is that gender identity is something which is prominent as a concept in the, you know, parts of humanities and maybe social science, not so much in medicine and certainly not in biological sciences. So when I came across gender identity as a, as a concept, I did what most scientists would probably do before they even dare to voice an opinion, which is to go to PubMed and check the scientific papers. Now, as long as you haven't found the time, you would probably stay away from discussing it. You know, it's, we, we were really, as a scientist, un, unless I know all the evidence and I've read the studies, I will be very hesitant to voice an opinion. And um, so that's probably why a lot of people from the biological sciences are silent on the topic, if they've come across it at all, because it's not prevalent. It's not something which is discussed. It's not something in Germany, it's different in the UK. Um, it doesn't come up. The other thing is, if you go on PubMed and you put in gender identity, you come across um, publications from the medical field. So you assume that it is a medical condition or, you know, official medical terminology. And it takes a little bit of digging to really realize that there is no clear definition. It's not really a kind of biological or medical entity or well-defined entity. So that, again, makes it even more difficult to position yourself um, regarding gender identity. I'm sure a lot of people, if in their 
classrooms, um, somebody would stand up and say, I think sex is a spectrum. Most people would discuss that based on the science to show that there isn't, unless you use very weird definitions of what biological sex is. But unless you're pushed into that position, you simply don't bring up the topic because you don't know how and why and in which context. Um, so I think that's one aspect. The other thing is, um, in general, also if you consider the scientific publications on the topic, most people do not consider the impacts of gender identity ideology on society and specifically women and girls, because as a scientist, you focus on your subject and the subject would be the person identifying as trans not the collateral damage that might come from policies around affirming um, those individuals. So we're now going to go to our second speaker, who is April Morrow. She's from the organisation Sovereign Women Speak, which she founded. Um, April is from the USA. She is an empath and an eco-feminist. She became aware of her calling when very young. Early on as an ordained minister of Jehovah's Witnesses, she bravely spoke out about the causes of degradation of our planet, animals and women, including two driving forces, porn and capitalism. 10 years ago, she uncovered the patriarchal lies and found her tribe with radical feminism. April is a life coach, dance teacher, and centre holder of Sovereign Women Speak, guiding scores of women, scores of women, many women, to confidence, courage, and sovereignty. In my early 20s, I became an ordained minister of Jehovah's Witnesses. I chose them for very specific reasons. First, they were the only religion I could find that spoke out about capitalism and its destruction to our planet and its war on nature and the female body. The indifference from my family members, partners, and community had worn on me. I would cry out, but was constantly told I was too sensitive and making people uncomfortable. Pornography had just become available on VHS, and I was livid. The Jehovah's Witnesses validated me, and I really appreciated that the women ran the ministry. It gave me a platform to speak out against these atrocities. The other big lure was that they were the only religion I could find that didn't teach that Jesus was God. By age 16, I had discovered by reading encyclopedias that the first century Christians did not worship a triune God known as the Trinity that connects all mainstream Christianity today. I also learned why that lie became a part of Christianity by the 3rd century. It's amazing how a blatant lie can become truth to the masses over a period of time. Several years later, and not that long ago, I learned how the fairy tale of that male deity hijacked this concept from the original source of life, being, of course, women. Today, I am an atheist. I loved my congregation and had very close bonds with my sisters, but my doubts about God being a man was not a secret, and eventually this became problematic. I had settled, and after so long of no one being able to explain where God's mother was, I kept obsessing and eventually left, but it took years. Then, years later, in 2012, 
I read A Language Older Than Word by Derek Jensen that would eventually lead me to radical feminism. His book validated my entire life. I reached out to the author, and he was very kind and understanding. I began researching feminism, but all I kept finding was liberal feminism and was very turned off. It really confused me and left me feeling hopeless. Then I started to buy books that Derek would speak of in his YouTube videos and newsletters. Women like Susan Griffin and Andrea Dworkin. As I read, I began to see the big picture and knew my tribe must be somewhere, yet still could not find them. Eventually, I began to find some on Facebook, but did not know how to get tapped in. Then I got an invite to Derek's talk at the library in Eugene, Oregon, and was excited to make connections with radical feminists there. I met Lierre and Saba and a few others and was feeling pretty positive. When we got to the library, I couldn't believe what I witnessed. Derek had tried to tell me about all the madness I clearly see today, but I wasn't getting until I saw it with my own eyes. Derek was there to read from his books about the planet and extinction of the species and was shut down by a group of TRAs because he is a male ally of radical feminist. It was obvious the police were on their side. I was disturbed to see such an unruly group be so privileged by those who are supposed to uphold the law. I told one of the police this would never be allowed in my hometown and what a disgrace their police were to allow this injustice. People had driven a long distance to hear Derek, but instead heard nothing but people spewing their hate. It was awful. I wanted out of that room so bad, but kept thinking the police would make it stop. They didn't. And there I am in shock of it all. My head just kept shaking in disbelief. Just one day prior, I didn't understand the magnitude, and then in one moment I was flooded with an overload of insight. Although I had met a few rad femmes, I still did not know how to become involved, but now wanted to more than ever. Finally, I saw a post on Facebook of Wolf holding an event in Seattle. I was thrilled and bought a ticket right away. On the post, I asked where everyone was staying and about meals, but there was no plan yet. That's when this event planner jumped into autopilot, and before I realized it, I had organized a group of about 20 women to stay in Seattle at the Harbor Steps with all meals planned and a large banquet room. I raised the money for the food, and all the women sent me money for our Airbnbs. I was so excited to meet all these women. At last, we meet in Seattle. Here are just a few of the women from our group. I had received a big donation of fresh crab, so I invited all the women attending the Wolf event to join us for a big crab fest. I met so many amazing women, including Heather, who would eventually become my very dear friend. At the library event, the conservatives and rad femmes stood in line peacefully, waiting to get in while the TRAs were in a heap of chaos, screaming like a bunch of wild banshees. It wasn't until after the event that I saw on video this physical violence from a TRA woman pushing a rad femme woman into the crowd. Once inside, a large piece of glass and several police officers stood between us and the mob spewing their hate. 
I had confidence the police would not allow these aggressive agitators to harm us. Everything was calm until Lierre began he to speak. Told me 20 years ago a man in the audience began blowing a bazooka. Women immediately started chanting, Let women speak. Thankfully, it didn't take long for the police to remove the disruption. I left the event floating on an oxytocin rad fam high. <laughs> the layers of lies from the patriarchy were being peeled away and I felt a healing balm engulf me from the years of grieving my Jehovah's Witness sisters. I was caught in between a whirlwind of embarrassment of how I could have been so blind and yet so ecstatic about finally finding where I belong in the world. I had finally found my tribe. Inspiration had grabbed a hold of me and I became obsessed with the idea of creating a platform for women to speak from, learn activism work, including direct action, education, and building a sisterhood and to cross-pollinate and support each other in solidarity. But COVID hit and all my plans were postponed, but still passionately stirring. Once I learned men were inside the women's prison here where I live, I knew that would be my focus. When the right time arrived, I reached out to Lierre Keith to ask for help and she graciously guided me in setting up the infrastructure to run my first event. After tossing different names around, Sovereign Women Speak is what spoke to me. Thank you, Vajrama. Next, I needed a team, but I could only find two women who were interested in my vision. Heather Scalzi, who I met in Seattle, and Nancy Diamond from my home state. I did not let that deter me. Thank you, Heather and Nancy, for trusting and believing in me. Next, Lear introduced me to a few women, and they introduced me to more, and soon I had my guest speakers lined up for a fabulous program, and that it was. They were all amazing. This is Gig Harbor. It is two minutes from WCCW, Washington's Correctional Center for Women, also known as Purdy Prison. It is the destination I chose to protest. Upon finding out that Washington State was locking men into women's cells, I about lost it. I wanted to visit the women, but COVID hindered everything. So I found a way to communicate with the women on the inside using JPay, an app that provides the ability to send letters. I pulled up WCCW's website and was able to copy-paste all the women's names and doc numbers. Then, I wrote a cover letter that addressed our mission and concern of men like Douglas Perry being housed with them and sent it out to 200 women asking them to spread the word, and they did. Letters began flooding my inbox of women's fears, frustrations, and anger. The women knew of our protest and were very excited and grateful as they expressed in their many letters. I felt like I couldn't get there soon enough. But the day had arrived and our bus was waiting to take us to the prison and harbor. For me, it was the highlight of the entire event. Lauren Adams gave a great speech of what was taking place inside prisons now that men are being housed with the women. 
Karadansky, Bess Steltzer, and Ava Park all delivered amazing speeches on the fly. All of it was so emotional. I had goosebumps layered on top of goosebumps. What is happening at the state level is happening at the federal level, where President Biden has signed a series of executive orders requiring federal agencies to interpret the word sex to mean so-called gender identity. It is happening all across the country. To the best of our knowledge, 49 states plus the District of Columbia allow men to be housed in women's prisons on the basis of their so-called gender identity. He is doing it based on a complete misreading of the Supreme Court's terrible decision in the case of Bostock versus Clayton County. He is lying to the American people about what that court decision said. He is saying that that court decision requires agencies to interpret the word sex to include gender identity. That is not true. We are here to say no to men in women's prisons in Washington state, in California, across the United States, and federally. Women say no. no! I learned so much and have become more powerful in every protest I have held since. Thank you, sisters. I am forever grateful. At the Sovereign Women Speak event, I met many women who live in Washington. Some joined us in our work and have been a huge help in making Sovereign Women Speak successful. Now we have more women involved in the JPay program doing some great work. As I began to produce the next event, the state moved to pass HB 1956. And instead of my hours being spent organizing and planning the next event, I was swept away in strategizing with women to legislate and testify against the bill to hide from public record the men the state is forcing women to be housed with. There were nine of us women and all of our testimonies were filled with stats, facts, and evidences showing how harmful it is to house men in women's prisons and how hiding them would only make it worse. You can find the full testimonies on our YouTube channel. Here is the tail end of one of the women's testimony. I couldn't help but add our previous event to the end of her testimony because it is so fitting, but please don't be confused by the timeline. I fully and unconditionally support the testimony of several women who spoke at the hearing today, describing the sexism, misogyny, and homophobia inherent in transgender ideology that our democratic leadership is currently promoting through non-transparent channels. It makes me sad to have lost faith in the party that used to inspire my ideals. Since our elected officials aren't doing the job, I'm choosing to stand with women, protecting women and children. What about you? Senator, please do the right thing and vote no on House Bill 1956 in order to help restore safety, sanity and order to our state. You and the other senators on this committee have an opportunity here to do a necessary course correction. I urge you all to vote as a unified front against the inhumane House Bill 1956 that guts the ability to make Freedom of Information Act requests about the male inmates who are currently being housed with female inmates. Please vote honorably with your conscience and not along party lines. 
please restore faith in our leadership. Set an example. What is happening is not acceptable. Thank you again for your time. It is unacceptable to ever house a single man in any women's facility, especially a man who has been convicted of raping a 12-year-old girl. man, no men belong, incarcerated with vulnerable, incarcerated women. Despite our testimonies, the committee passed the bill. I was furious. There was one woman on the committee, Senator Patty Cooterer. I wondered how any woman could pass this. I began researching her and discovered she ran with the progressive woke neoliberal elites and was directly hooked in with AI, the cloud, and all those steering the helm towards transhumanism and female erasure. I became physically ill. I left her a voicemail letting her know how much anger and fear her decision imploded to all the women inside and asked how she slept at night big surprise I didn't hear back from her. I felt like a volcano was erupting through my soul. Now, not only had the state sanctioned rape, but they knew just how to hide it. At this point, I felt like my hands were tied, but they soon found their way to the poster board, and I was now on a mission to expose the state of Washington for HB 1956 and its inhumane and insane injustices to women. We began protesting one of the busiest intersections in Washington state. Lo and behold, Scott Fleming, the man who blew the whistle on Princess Love and WCCW, just happens to see us and stops and gives us his number. Scott had given an interview to Dory Munson, which is on our website, and was willing to do an interview with us. I set up the interview with Scott and Liz, one of the women who has been helping me a lot with Sovereign Women Speak. You can find the interview that Liz and I did with Scott on our YouTube channel. Since then, Liz has found an attorney to represent Mossy Clark, the woman who most recently was groped by a man, Christopher, calling himself Christy. Despite this man having a record of violence against women, molesting children, and publicly masturbating in front of the guards in the men's prison, WCCW had no problem putting him in a cell with a woman. Mossy Clark filed a complaint with Priya, and we are helping her to fight back. We have great hope that this attorney will help every woman who is forced to be locked in with a man here at WCCW. Liz has an appointment to meet with Senator Patty Cooterer this Monday. I can hardly wait to hear the outcome. Although we know she's not going to see eye to eye, we find it important to hold her accountable and to have public record of her inhumanity and choices she is making that are putting women in danger. Moving forward into our second annual event, we held our conference outdoors, right next to the university, hoping to catch the attention of the public. But once again, no news coverage or community was present other than one man walking by calling us turf bitches. Here is a quick look into our speaker's corner.
we demand an end to the insane, inhumane, and indefensible practice of housing male prisoners in the women's prisons. We are imbued by nature and the cosmos itself to be the source of life. Let's stand tall in that and remember that. Stand up and do the right thing. Stand in front and be the protectors of women and children. That is your job. Women will speak. Sovereign women speak. We will not be your doormat. We do not abdicate our responsibility to protect children, and we will not be silent. We'll never be defeated. We'll never be defeated. The women united. The women united. Just, people just need to understand. They just need to hear the truth. They will do the right thing. I have so much faith in people. Women united. Never be divided. Never be divided. We will not rest until justice is everywhere. The full-length speeches can be found on our YouTube channel next week. Moving forward into the next event, I have chosen to enter my hometown parade theming ourselves as suffragettes. We will march with our huge banners displaying our message. After the parade, the community spends the day in the park and many families bring their children for the festivities. It will be a perfect way to get our brochures into the hands of many families. Although I am no longer a Jehovah's Witness, I still proselytize like one. My message has changed a bit. But I am still tenacious, and the passion that lives in my message is stronger than ever. Motivation is when you take a hold of an idea and make it happen. Inspiration is when an idea takes a hold of you and directs your every step. May inspiration find you and lead you to your passion. Thank you. We're now really, really um, lucky to have another fantastically brilliant, wonderful speaker. We have Sheila Jeffries. For, she's from the UK. Uh, Sheila Jeffries writes in the areas of sexual politics, international gender politics and lesbian and gay politics. She has written 12 books on the history of politics and sexuality. Originally from the UK, Sheila moved to Melbourne, Melbourne in Australia in 1991 to take up a position at the University of Melbourne. She retired back to the UK in 2015. Sheila has been actively involved in feminist and lesbian feminist politics, particularly around the issue of sexual violence since 1973. She's a director of Women's Declaration International and co-author of the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights. And today, uh, Sheila Jeffries will talk to us on nappy fetishism. Fet fetishism. So thank you so much, Sheila, and over to you. Nappy fetishism, which has got many different names, is a sexual practice in which men imitate female babies. Uh, it's one of the topics that feature in my new book, Penile Imperialism, the Male Sex Right and Women's Subordination. That's the uh, title and the cover of the new book. And the cover represents uh, snot from the nose, uh, semen and sick. I thought that those three things sort of combined very well because it was hard to know, you know, what to do. I didn't want to do a skyscraper or something to, to represent uh, penile imperialism. 
I'll be talking about the book more at the beginning of October when the book actually comes out um, uh, in the Radical Feminist Perspective series. I wrote the book in order to show uh, where met the men's transvestite rights movement came from. Um, uh, that's the movement about what's called supposedly gender identity. I wanted to fit it into the history of men's campaigns for their sexual rights, which has led to the normalization and protection of an expanding variety of what used to be called sexual perversions and are now more politely called paraphilias. Men's transvestite behavior is one of these. Now, I have written uh, two books about the so-called sexual revolutions of the 20th century in the 1920s and the 1960s and 70s, uh, which have been hailed as marvelous advances in women's right to sexual pleasure. I have pointed out that these supposed revolutions, in fact, promised, promoted and protected the male sex right to assured access to the use and abuse of women through the normalization of pornography and prostitution, for instance. Since the so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s, male sexual rights activists have campaigned to normalize a range of the perversions or paraphilias. These are forms of men's sexual behavior which pose serious harm to women and children. They're exciting to their male practitioners because they transgress boundaries and involve the eroticizing of power difference. The huge expansion of the sex industry out of the sexual revolution transformed the exercise of male sexuality. Men's hobbies, the leisures they, they pursued in, in the spare time they had, because women did all the work in the home and brought up children with barely time to relax with a cup of tea, all of those hobbies fell away. Not so many men now seem to be doing train spotting or stamp collecting. Rather, pornography, strip and prostitution provided a much more exciting diversion and potentially kept them in a state of orgasmic delight for hours in the day. Constantly having their sexual fantasies reshaped by the expanding smorgasbord of delights that the industry laid before them. Porn both served the development of men's sexual perversions and it served to create them. In the book, I explain that the first perversion to be campaigned for was men's right to sexually use children, often called pedophilia, which is a euphemism for the, for the desire to rape children. This was followed by the promotion of sadomasochism by gay men in particular, as part of their sexual rights agenda. I don't see lesbian and gay rights as, as problematic, of course. Um, adult uh, egalitarian sexual practice, which hurts no one, cannot be seen as a problem. And of course, I am a lesbian. But rather, uh, the gay and lesbian rights are the right to choose sexual and love partners of the same adult sex. Now, in the case of each of the men's sexual paraphilias that I cover in the book, Paraphilia is a euphemism for what used to be called perversions. I explain the tactics that the male campaigners used. Some campaigns have been more successful than others. The campaigns are usually preceded by the creation of specialist pornography and involves the creation of specialized support groups and interest groups, these days online, and the creation of specialized shops to buy fetish equipment 
e.g. man-sized man high-heeled shoes for transvestites and man-sized nappies. The support groups are expanded into lobbying organizations which campaign for normalization and social and legal approval. An important part of the campaigning is to pressure the science of sexology and the medical profession to changing the way in which the paraphilias are classified and to change the language that is used to describe them. Instead of being perverts, the practitioners say, they are people, they rarely admit they are almost entirely men, who cannot help themselves and should receive social approvement and support, approval and support. They say they are biologically this way and just acting out a natural behavior. They're not su suffering from any form of mental health problem. When I finished the book last year, I wrote confidently that though nappy fetishism was developing support groups, pornography, specialized shops, and so on, it was unlikely to precisely follow the fetishes of sadomasochism and transgenderism in campaigning for legal rights and social acceptance. Little did I know. A couple of new stories in the last two months have made it clear that I was wrong. Men's nappy fetishism is now being normalized in ways that surprise me. And I've been writing about this sort of thing for a long time. So I want to move on now to talk specifically about nappy fetishism, often called adult baby syndrome. The acronym BDSM, Bondage, Discipline and Sadomasochism, which was previously called Sadomasochism on its own, has experienced continuous expansion so that it now covers a wide range of men's fetish behavior. What the practice is having in common is the eroticizing of a power hierarchy. Nappy fetishism, though, is relatively new. It does not yet have a fixed name, either in the medical or in the hobbyist literature. It is called variously nappy fetishism, adult baby syndrome, age identity disorder, infantilism, and much more. And it involves adult men choosing to wear nappies and or engage in what they see as the behavior of babies and small children, female babies, of course. This can range from making baby talk to demanding that women change their soiled nappies and wash their bottoms, or it might mean wearing special adult baby clothes. They may choose to do this occasionally or all the time that they are at home or wear, wear nappies under their regular clothes in public. And this is a typical nappy fetishist. Um, they are, there's a large amount, of course, of erotica online, but this is a perfectly ordinary variety. This would be a very standard man. And there are now, of course, increasingly huge, huge, huge uh, numbers of these men. In the case of nappy fetishism, it resembles other forms of men's fetishism in not being a private practice. It's mostly carried out in private homes or in workplaces where women and children are forced to observe or, or take part. Um, some practitioners demand that their wives service their fetish by enabling them to be babies on a permanent basis. And some demand that special nurseries are created in their homes in which their wives can attend to them. At the moment, the wives have been pretty silent about all of this, but they will, of course, come out and speak about it. The practice has been disseminated through the online pornography industry and the hobbyist community of nappy fetishes only in the last decade. 
Though there are a couple of examples in the sexological literature of cases of this practice from the 1960s, no diagnosis has been deemed necessary in the DSM, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and it's only in the last decade that an academic interest has developed. An article from 1964 was called An Unusual Perversion, for instance. And another case was recorded in 1965. But the next flurry of interest was in the early 2000s. And this has only become more than a trickle in the last decade. The recent considerable increase in the practice, however, is indicated by specialized online shops and even one bricks and mortar establishment selling equipment such as a plethora of specialized, uh, uh, and there, as well as that, there is a plethora of specialized dating sites and chat rooms on Reddit, for instance. Considering that this fetish behavior is new, it might be surprising to find that it is defended by its practitioners as innate, something that cannot be controlled or changed. But this is being said by those fetishists. Now, fetishism is very relevant to our struggle against men's practice of woman face, because it is common for men who have one paraphilia to have a number of others. Men who engage in apotemnophilia, for instance, i.e. trying to get a limb or limbs amputated, or who pretend to have a disability by using a wheelchair, are all practiced for their sexual excitements. And they often also engage in the fetish of transvestism. And the most famous exponent is a man who calls himself Chloe Jennings Wright. Let's have a look at Chloe. Here is Chloe Jen Jennings Wright. White. He's a, a mountain climber with transvestite and disability uh, fetishism. I, I'm afraid I do often use him as an example because he is a very good example. Now, another fetishism commonly to be found um, with uh, transvestites is nappy fetishism. As we shall see, nappy fetishists fantasize about being female babies, never males. And in this way, they double up the masochistic rewards by doubling the disadvantage they're acting out, which is both femaleness and childhood. So those are both things low in the hierarchy of power. So it's particularly exciting to do both of them together. Now to see what the men get excited by, uh, what it's all about for them. I always look at um, their pornography. And nappy fetishist pornography provides a very useful guide for the motivations and excitements of the men who engage in the practice. Written pornography directed at men who are excited by pretending to be female babies in nappies is well presented, represented on Amazon. I did not watch for my book any of the video pornography in order to write about men's sexual practices because having to watch it would be distressing to me and would constitute my being harmed by men's abusive behavior. Fortunately, there's a great deal of information available from novellas that are promoted online. It's not even usually necessary to read the materials because the titles, excerpts, and illustrations are so informative. It is immediately clear when you look at these that nappy fetishism is a paraphilia which is closely linked to transvestism because the material largely consists of men imitating female children who wear nappies. A sample of titles can give a general overview of the field. 
babied by my neighbor, for instance, has graphic descriptions and descriptions of diaper sex, adult baby role play, facials, that's ejaculation on the face, masturbation, oral and rough penetrative sex. That's the description that was on the cover. The action in the, um, in the excerpt, um, can, well, in the book, can, it includes a girl in a nappy who manages to ejaculate like a man. Another title, uh, Becoming His Baby, contains masturbation, forced regression, humiliation, soft diapers, age play, lots of cum, that's what it said on the cover, and concerns a schoolgirl who meets a man on the way back from school and has a secret read nappy under her skirt. Then there's Training Little Sophie, uh, which concerns transvestite incest pornography. Uh, it, uh, extract says, on the morning of my 18th birthday, I woke to a shock. I was locked inside an adult-sized playpen, determined to stay the man of the house's little girl forever. I soon found myself wearing a diaper and acting like an adult baby. I knew it was wrong, but some taboo fantasies are just too tempting to resist. Now, I want to look at the effect of nappy fetishism on women and children. Nappy fetishism, like all of men's other paraphilias, has harmful effects upon women and children. One way in which women are harmed is through sexual harassment by nappy fetishists. Like transvestites, these fetishists are excited by getting reactions from women. They want an audience to witness their behavior in order to gain maximum arousal. And doing their perversion just in their own bedroom or on special weekends away is not as exciting as performing in front of horrified or fearful women in the women's toilets, for instance. We can see um, the nappy fetishes going out onto the streets so that they can get their excitements in the same way as transvestites are able to do. Now, this photograph I found on a nappy fetishist uh, support site. And it's described as a man who's just stepped off a tram in Prague. Now, in case anybody thinks that this man has just lost his way and forgotten to put his trousers on, there's a description in the, um, in the forum, which says, by a man who's obviously a nappy fetishist, who says that this sort of behavior and he says that it's particularly exciting for the men because they feel very humiliated. That's the word he uses from being out in public like this. This behavior is an embarrassment because it can give nappy fetishists a bad name. So really they should not do it. Um, uh, now nappy fetishists are uh, target um, female airline staff, university lecturers, carers, and of course their wives and partners. The most usual form of assault is to demand under various pretexts that the women change their soiled nappies. In one case on Vancouver, Vancouver Island, the university's former director of human rights and workplace safety filed a complaint with the British Columbia Human Rights Tribunal alleging alleging that Nanaimo University failed to adequately support and protect professors, staff, and students from the exploits of a nappy fetishist. 
The man, who was in his 40s, engaged in various forms of harassment. He sent his female English professor pictures of himself in just a nappy and pointing to a soiled nappy as part of an assignment. He would ask professors to speak in a, um, speak in a baby voice and read children's stories. He would ask the university nurse to change his dirty nappies on two occasions, and the second time she refused. But obviously the first time she had to do that. Over years, he was involved in various other kinds of harassment of women, such as complimenting them on their clothing while leering at their chests, repeatedly asking staff members to go on dates and following female staff members. members. The men who demand that women handle their feces generally argue that they suffer from some disability that would require this and that failure to service them would be a form of discrimination. In a case in Arizona, Paul Menchaca, 31, was charged with fraudulent schemes and sexual abuse after pretending to have Down syndrome so that he could hire carers to bathe him and change his nappies. Menchaca posed as a woman, Amy, and claimed to be his own mother to hire the women who were asked to punish him in timeout and take away his privileges. The first carer told police that she'd help bathe and change the men's man's diapers on 30 separate occasions. In five separate incidents, Menchaca reportedly told her that his genitals were not cleaned well enough. He became sexually aroused by the women's ministrations, which was, of course, the whole point of the exercise. There are increasing numbers of these examples, including men doing this to air hostesses and so on. Now, nappy fetishism is often one of a palette of paraphilias, um, as I've said, that a man entertains, which may include transvestism and child sexual abuse in the same person. One study of paraphiliacs pointed out that only 30% of their 561 study subjects, quote, confined their deviant behavior to only one perversion. So they generally have more than one. In the case of Terence Moore from Newcastle, he practiced all three of his related paraphilias at the same time, uh, which is the sexual abuse of children, uh, nappy fetishism, um, and transvestism. He'd been, he was jailed for, had been jailed for previous sexual offenses against a girl under 13, and was then trapped by a group of paedophile hunters who interrupted him twice in three months, trying to meet a boy of 15, equipped with adult nappies, a baby bottle of milk, and a dummy. The court heard how the defendant's rucksack contained a variety of um, these uh, materials. It does seem likely, though, uh, that there are a number of different forms of this child sexual abuse on the part of nappy fetishes developing. Uh, in the case of one man, he actually killed his son. Uh, because his uh, uh, young son um, was about to dispose, uh, expose him. Um, so where children become aware of the nappy fetishism in families, it can be dangerous. Dylan Redwine, who was 13, went missing and was later found dead after a court-ordered visit to his father Mark Redwine in the state of Colorado. D 
Dylan's older brother described photographs which it is believed that the child confronted his father about. They show the father eating feces out of a nappy he was wearing whilst dressed in women's clothes and makeup. Mark Redwine was indicted on charges of second degree murder and child abuse. When men's fetishism focuses on feces specifically, rather than on soiled nappies as part of adult baby sexual games, it can cause very considerable problems for other citizens. This was the case in Cornwall in the UK, when a slurry, that is the excrement of animals fetishist, engaged in eight years of harassment of a farming family in order to express his fetish, which consisted of rolling naked while masturbating in animal feces. The Daily Telegraph writes that a man with a slurry fetish has been jailed for five years after threatening to kill a family who tried to stop him rolling naked in cowpacks on their farm. He also set fire to parts of the farm and killed a calf. Now, um, services are developing as an industry to um, service the nappy fetishes um, becomes uh, big online and in sometimes in bricks and mortar. In the pornography marketplace, services and resources have been created. Uh, there's various prof uh, profitable niches developing, one of which is uh, advice and support literature for practitioners. These are men writing the stuff themselves. One man, Michael Bent, with an interest in adult babyhood, has produced several books and other written resources with the help of his wife, apparently. His 2015 book, Adult Babies, Who Are We and What Do We Do? Um, purports to be an introductory primer for an emerging practice. He seeks to set out a correct language for his sexual interest, which gives it a suitable gravitas and respect. He says that diaper attraction has been referred to in unflattering terms as a psychosexual paraphilia, but he prefers adult infantile regression. The Bent's books present nappy fetishists as uh, the victims of some innate problem that should be treated with sympathy because they have a difficult time. It is, they say, an essentially unremovable part of life. Another niche consists of materials purportedly written by the complicit wives of nappy fetishists to advise other wives how to surface their husband's predilections. They read as pornography for the fetishists and as wish fulfillment because these men want their wives to agree to play their games. They are likely to be written by the fetishists themselves, but they do lay out the full problem that wives can face when their partners require their compliance. One example of this literature is Maggie Joyce's Managing the Full-Time Permanent Adult Infant Caring for the Total Adult Baby. Joyce's book is published by AB Adult Baby Discovery, which is the online bookstore run by Michael and Rosalie Bent, specializing in nappy fetishist books and articles. Joyce explains that her husband, Melissa, would, as pursue, would assume the persona of a female baby in secret at first. And over the years, Melissa became slowly more infantile. His growing children were simply told, daddy wears nappies. 
Her husband tried to hold back the tide of her permanent infancy for 10 years while the children were young. Joyce was required to service the fetish and this became more onerous after the children were grown when her husband was freer to pursue his hobby. This caused friction. The arguments came more frequently, she says, and dirty nappies were the point at which we clashed most. They were deliberate and she didn't even deny it, but she didn't soil at work because that would be a very big problem. She soiled at home and it was a source of great distress and argument for us both. The story depicts the continuing psychological torture of an apparently long-suffering long female partner in which she's worn down bit by bit towards accepting behavior she abhors. Amongst the services the nappy fetishists require is advice on a matter of producing feces or urine into a nappy. For most people, there's a strong barrier to engaging in defecation in public places or in diapers. They will usually have been potty trained as infants not to do this. To satisfy the sexual fetish, they have to reverse their potty training. The interest groups that the fetishes create on Reddit, for instance, offer advice on this important topic. The sort of questions to which they provide answers include, and this is just taken from one site, what would happen if you always use diapers and never a toilet? I can't soil my diaper. I am working at a job with no bathroom access and I haven't pooped for weeks. My bowel is probably full. How can I train myself to poop in diapers instead of a toilet? What is the fastest way to become diaper dependent? How can I unpotty train myself? I am 23, almost 24, and want to wear diapers. Uh, nappy fetishism is developing exponentially now as an industry. Uh, it's an interview with a man seen as a leader in the industry describes a huge expansion, which is very good for all the products he makes. And luckily I have a picture of him. And I think he is the one on the left here. This is his friend who's actually wearing the nappy at this time. Um, this man, uh, the man on the left, has many, many factories producing nappies. He's expanding all the time. And he and his friend go to nappy fetishist conventions and they do for, um, photography at the conventions, which is why he has the photographic equipment. So it is very profitable for sex capitalism. Now, let's just think about, you know, maybe these men have um, a mental health problem and might seek uh, to get support from the, the mental health profession. Unfortunately, though, um, adult babies do not offer fertile ground for the psychiatrists who are becoming interested in them because they enjoy their sexual activities and they show little interest in being cured. In an interesting piece from 2003, two psychiatrists grapple with the emerging practice of adult babyhood. The woman psychiatrist said she was disappointed by the absence of any literature about working with this type of patient. She explains that there are subcultures related to the paraphilias and so on. Um, she says sometimes they may request treatment and appear as a baby for the purpose of what in this case is clearly sexual harassment. The man had no interest in being treated, but he demanded a woman psychiatrist and said his last woman psychiatrist was mean to him. He then spoke in a soft childlike voice, dressed as a child in Winnie the Pooh clothing, proceeded to lie on the couch sucking a bottle and stated provocatively and stared provocatively at the psychiatrist. 
At the therapy interview, he explained that wearing diapers was a kind of sexual thing, that he masturbated while wearing diapers several times a day, and urinated and defecated into his diapers using five per day. He asked for a prescription for diapers so that he could buy them more cheaply. The psychiatrist felt sexually harassed, she said. There was something vaguely uncomfortable about it, a cross between being regarded as a sexual object and as a longed for mother. The patient did not return to the psychiatrist, but wanted the opportunity for sexual excitement with other women, so asked on the phone for referral to a baby clinic. For example, he asked that I admit him to a nursery at a nearby children's hospital or see him in the child psychiatry clinic. Because I felt that this ongoing desire interfered with the therapy, I spent time explaining that it was not possible for me to admit him to places such as these because he was not actually a baby. Alongside teachers and social workers, female psychiatrists form another constituency of professionals who can be induced or deceived into surfacing the sex right of nappy fetishists. Now, since I wrote the book, as I say, a couple of cases have come to my attention which show that um, nappy fetishism is really becoming a very serious problem in a very similar way to that of some of the other uh, fetishistic practices. Um, the, a problem that sadomasochists, for instance, and I write about this in the book, seek to overcome is the fact that courts may not consider them fit parents for their children, particularly if they engage in the practice in their home, as most will, and they, these parents may have problems in getting custody for their children. That there, there is a lobby group, the Sex Industry Organization in the US, which represents their interests. It's called the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom. It provides lawyers to argue for sadomasochists in court and wants law change to protect their rights. The argument is that cutting and beating, whipping and bondage are all normal sexual activities, which children can be expected to put up with in their parents. The nappy fetishists are on their way to making the same arguments but do not yet have the same level of clout as the sadomasochists. Thus, in a court case in Australia this year, a father was banned from seeing his children whilst he was obviously wearing a nappy. In a case before the family court, the father, whose behavior of wearing nappies and indulging his fetish around the home had led to his wife leaving him, had been prominently wearing a nappy when he dropped off his children with his ex-wife after a visit. He claimed he was being discriminated against because of his association with the adult diap uh, baby diaper uh, community. And he says uh, he feels and has, uh, he feels for and has always respected other minority identities who have been persecuted or treated differently just for being who they are. So you can see how this is developing, saying that this is innate, this is something they can't help, they need the right to engage in this practice, and so on. He's going to take his case to the High Court on the grounds that he is being discriminated against. Another case uh, is about the right to wear nappies in prison. A right to be a nappy fetishist is now being developed into the right, uh, in the same way as the right to express gender identity. In a recent Scottish case, again, just I think last month, a man born Daniel Eastwood, who now identifies as a woman called Sophie, has demanded nappies in jail to service his nappy fetish. He's a murderer who killed his male cellmate and was jailed for life in 2004. He told prison officials that he identifies as a baby and is entitled to nappies and special pureed food 
and that prison guards should hold his hand when escorting him from his cell. According to the newspaper report, his demands are being taken seriously and he's been provided with a baby's dummy. The advance by nappy fetish campaigners in getting their perversion to be seen as innate is indicated by the fact that a prison spokesperson says, it's difficult to know if she really does feel a natural inclination to be treated like a baby or if it's just some kind of attention seeking. Well, what could be a natural inclination to be a baby? But this is the sign, a sign of the way this perversion is headed. Um, I'll just finish off here now, I think. It worries me that forms of men's sexual behavior that I thought were too disgusting or grotesque to ever be seen as natural are on the way to being seen in that way. It does seem there's no limit to the variety of men's paraphilias that are being created in pornography and moving out into the public world. And in penal imperialism, I say that feminists need to be challenging these harmful forms of the male sex right one by one, and this can be very successful. We are, after all, starting to have significant success in challenging men's gender identity fantasies in Europe, in Australia, and in the US at this time. And I was thinking um, just now that I probably should mention one of the ones that's, that's moving forward, which is naturism. I didn't put this in the book, but there are big campaigns by the British Naturist Association for being able, for men being able to be naked just about anywhere. They could be next to you on the bus, they could be in a restaurant, and so on and so on. There's no laws against naturism of this form, men being naked in the street in this country. And naturism is very fascinating, what they do at all their resorts, and so on. Didn't have time for that this time, maybe another time. So I'll stop there. <laughs>